Welcome to episode 183 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Debbie, Penelope, and Jeffrey. They used the donation button on our website. Thank you, Debbie, Penelope, and Jeffrey, for your generous contributions. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. Before we begin, we would like to state that though we at The Recovery Show may be in a 12-step program, we represent ourselves rather than the program. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope that you will find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Spencer, and I'm your host today. And today I'd like to share an open talk by Kathy C. I found a lot of my own experience in her sharing, and I particularly liked the way she kept the focus on herself, especially during the portion of her talk when she talked about what it was like. My name is Kathy, and I'm a member of the... Athens Al-Anon Family Group in Athens, Texas. Al-Anon tells me that I should tell you what I was like, what happened, and what I'm like today. Before I do that, I want to make several things real clear. First of all, being the wife of an alcoholic does not make me an Al-Anon. Being married to an alcoholic makes me the wife of an alcoholic are the popular term from a lot of the treatment centers a co-alcoholic. What makes me an Al-Anon is attending Al-Anon meetings and working the 12-step program of Al-Anon in my daily life. I also want you to know that I am not an authority on Al-Anon. All I have is my own story, my own experience, how Al-Anon has changed my life and how I work the 12-step program in Al-Anon in my life today. The other thing I want you to know is that my husband and I have shared everything since the day we were married. We've shared the good times and we've shared the hard times. And we certainly shared his alcoholism. Now, I'm not here to take his inventory, but I have his permission to tell you anything about his drinking as it relates to my story. I'm the youngest of four children, and that might tell you right off that I was just a tad spoiled, and I was. My mom thought I had my dad wrapped around my finger, and my dad thought I had my mom wrapped around my finger, and my sisters and brother just gave in to me. At a very early age, I developed a philosophy for myself to live by, and that philosophy was this. I can do anything that I want to do. All I have to do is make up my mind, and I can do it. And I can do it all by myself. I don't need anybody's help. And furthermore, I can do it with a degree of perfection. Now, I learned very quickly, if you're going to live by this philosophy, you can't ask questions. You have to figure things out for yourself and do it. About this same time, I came up with my own philosophy about God. And I was to carry this philosophy with me, until I got to Al-Anon, to people just like you. And after a period of time, you showed me and taught me different. Now, my philosophy about God came from a statement I heard my mother make many times when I was young. And I didn't understand what she meant, but you have to remember, I don't ask questions. I had to figure it out for myself. That statement was this. Anytime anybody would do anything harmful or hurtful to someone else, my mother would say, God will take care of them. 
Now, I didn't understand what she meant, and it confused me. I grew up in a religious home, and I went to Sunday school and church, and I knew that God loved me, and he loved everybody else. So I figured what she must mean is that if you do something wrong, God will punish you. He's up there with a big scorecard on everybody, and if you do good, you get a check mark, and if you do bad, he'll punish you. He's a loving God, but he's a punishing God. What you have to do is figure these things out for yourself because God's busy grading. So you figure things out, do them, and then he'll grade you on it. After all, many times I heard my mother say, God gave you a brain, use it. So that had to be what you were supposed to do. Now, I was one of those kids that was never any age. I vividly remember on my 13th birthday, I was 13 that morning. That afternoon, I was going on 14. And it was that way with everything in my life. I was always going on something else. One day at a time just did not fit in my philosophy for life. I was in a hurry to grow up, a hurry to go everywhere. You see, quite early in life, I decided when I grew up, I wanted a career. And I wanted that career to be that of an airline stewardess. And I just knew that they would do away with that profession before I got old enough to be one. So I had to hurry up and grow up so I could get that job. Now, I have to tell you that this philosophy worked for me, and it worked very well for many years. Anything I wanted to do, I did. Anything I set out to accomplish, I accomplished it. And I did do it with a degree of perfection. I did finally get old enough to apply for that job of an airline stewardess, and they hired me. I knew they would. After all, I had made up my mind that that's what I was going to do. And I still have that same job today, and I love that job. I'm just one of those very fortunate people who enjoys what they do for a living. Well, I'd been flying for quite a few years, and I'd been dating this guy about four years. And I was over at my mom and dad's one day, and my mother said, Are you ever going to get married? Well, I was very quickly approaching age 28, and I guess she thought she might have an old maid on her hands, and she didn't want that. Well, shortly thereafter, I was at home one day, and this fellow lived in Miami, and I lived in Dallas, and he had a sister that lived in Miami. And one day, he called me from over at his sister's house, and he asked me to marry him. And he was on the phone, his sister was on the extension to the telephone, and what could I say? All of his friends had been saying, when are you guys ever going to get married? So what could I say but yes? And from that moment until the moment I walked down the aisle, I had doubts about that decision. And I kept saying, God, if this is not what I should do, please let me know. But you see, I really wasn't in tune to listening to God. And there was no crash of lightning, no bolt of thunder. So I married that man. And very shortly thereafter found myself in a very unhappy marriage. And two years later, that marriage ended in divorce. Now, after getting into this program and getting honest with myself, I have to tell you and admit to some things. First of all, I contributed to the failure of that marriage way before he did. Because you see, when that divorce came about, even as early as when I became unhappy in that marriage, I blamed him because I had never failed at anything. And I felt that he caused me to fail at something. And I didn't like that sense of failure. So I blamed him totally for it. 
I have to tell you today that I contributed to the failure of that marriage way before he did. Because I married that man, not really loving him, as you should love someone to marry them. We both contributed to it, but I certainly made the first contribution to the failure of the marriage. I also know today that God only showed me in about 500 different ways I shouldn't marry that man. But you see, I wasn't in tune to listening to God's will or asking for guidance. Because in my philosophy for living, God did not give guidance. So I wasn't in tune for looking or listening. Shortly after that divorce, I started dating this man. And he was then and he is now the most lovable, kind, considerate man I have ever known. And from the very start, we had the most wonderful thing about our relationship, the ability to communicate. And thank God we still have that today. We could talk about anything and everything, and I love that. There had been no communication in my first marriage, and I hated that. But here was a man that I could talk to about everything, and I love that. Shortly before we started dating, several months before, his wife had been killed. And we had been dating a short time, and he was arrested and charged with capital felony murder in connection with her death. And I thought this was the most unfair thing I had ever heard of in my whole life. How could anyone think this man, who was so kind and considered and loving, capable of doing such a thing? This man who had such respect for life and for living. There was just no way, and I thought it so unfair. Well, Rod had told me from the very first that he was a recovering alcoholic. Now, I knew nothing about alcoholism. I'd heard of AA, and I thought, well, that's a place where people go who are drunk all the time. And that was my only thought about it. We had many discussions about AA and about alcoholism, and he told me that alcoholism was a disease, and I didn't have any trouble with that. And if you would have asked me, I would have said, oh, I have a marvelous understanding of the disease of alcoholism. The truth was I understood so little. Well, due to the fact that Rod was charged with a felony, he was off from flying. We both worked for the same company, and he was off from flying that period of time until his trial was to come about. And I watched that man go through a very difficult time that summer because he so loved flying, and I had to watch him be without that. But he just demonstrated something to me that was just unbelievable, something I had never seen in a person before. He had the most unbelievable faith that I have ever seen anyone have. Somehow he just knew that everything was going to be okay. And many times he talked about this, and he was never resentful of the situation that he had been placed in on being put on trial for this murder or anything. And that was just unbelievable to me, because I could find many reasons to be resentful about it. But never once did I hear him say an unkind or resentful thing about it. And he just talked about this faith he had, and that everything was going to be okay, and I just never had seen anyone have that type of faith. 
Well, that was in the summer, and in that fall, the trial finally, in the, excuse me, in the winter, the trial finally came about, and he was found not guilty, and we were just thrilled to death. And shortly thereafter, he was returned to flying, and then in the summer of 1978, we were married. And I want to say right now that this is the most wonderful marriage that anyone could ever have. It's far more than I ever dreamed a marriage could be. For the first time in my life, I love someone unconditionally. And I never knew I had the ability to love that way. Because I thought that type of love only existed in books. But purely through his example did I learn about unconditional love. Did I want to love someone unconditionally? He never tried to change me. He just accepted me the way I was. And I, a lot of times I was a real bitch. And he just accepted me and loved me just that way. And purely through his example did I want to experience and love unconditionally. Well, life was just a storybook romance. We both continued to, to fly and we flew as many trips as we could together. And life was just wonderful. Well, in October of 1979, I put Rod in the hospital with double pneumonia. And he was so sick. And they called in an internal medicine specialist to treat him. And after they got him all settled down in the hospital, I pulled that doctor aside and I said, My husband is a recovering alcoholic. Please don't do anything to endanger his sobriety. And that doctor looked at me and he said, Yes, ma'am. Your husband has told me that he's a recovering alcoholic. And I assure you I have a very good knowledge of the disease of alcoholism and I, will do, I won't do anything to disrupt that chemical imbalance and turn right around and prescribe Percodan four times a day for ten days for my husband. Now, I know today that that doctor had about as much understanding of the disease of alcoholism as I did at that time, which was none. Well, after ten days, they released Rod from the hospital, and I took him home, and he had some errands that needed to be done. And it was cold and it was winter and I didn't want him out in the weather. So I said I would go take care of those errands. And I was gone for a little while and I came back and he was asleep and he slept most of that day. And he woke up that evening and he was in the strangest mood. And I thought, oh no, they've released him from the hospital too soon. He's just too sick to be out of the hospital. The next morning he woke up and he was his old self again. And that was confusing to me, but I was just so glad he was feeling better that I didn't question it. Several days later, I was out doing some things, and I came in, and he was asleep, and he slept most of that day. Once again that evening when he woke up, he was in that strange mood. And I so wanted to talk to him, but he was in such a strange place that I just couldn't. The next morning, he got up, and he was his old self again. And I wanted to ask him about that. And for the first time that I had, since I had known him, there was something I could not talk to him about. For some reason, I just could not ask him about this mood of the night before. But shortly thereafter, I had to face the realization that my husband was drinking. And I did not know what to do. I was scared to death. The first thing that came to my mind was, when we talked about alcoholism back before we were ever married, when he told me that if he drank again, he would die. And you have to remember, I don't ask questions. 
The man said he would die, and I did not want him to die. I loved him. I didn't want to lose him, and that frightened me. The next thought that came to my mind was the exemption that he was flying under from the federal government, which said if he ever drank again, once again, they would pull his license. And I didn't want to see him go through that. I'd seen him go through a period of time without flying, and I knew how much he loved flying, and I didn't want to see him be without it. So I didn't know what to do about that. I was just in a paralyzing fear. I didn't know what to do about it, how to help or how not to help. So for a day or two, I just did nothing but sit around in a stupor and wonder what to do. Well, I decided I had to do something. Now, I'm one of these people that if I'm going to take up a new sport or learn a new hobby, I go and buy a book on it. So I got his AA book, and I flipped through it looking for the chapter entitled How to Get Him Back Into AA. Well, (laughs) there was no such chapter in the book, as you all know, so I threw the book aside. And I went to the bookstore, and I looked through all those books, and I uh, found this book, and I'm sure today that it was the title of the book that sold it to me. It was entitled The Booze Battle, and for some reason I thought, yes, it's going to be a battle. And I took that book home, and I flipped through it, and I looked for that chapter entitled How to Get Him Back Into AA. You see, I knew AA worked. I married a sober alcoholic who got sober in Alcoholics Anonymous, so I knew it worked. I didn't understand a lot about the disease, but I knew AA worked. And that's all I wanted to do was to get him back into AA. Well, as I say, there was no chapter in that book entitled How to Get Him Back into AA, but I did get something out of that book. It said that if he has been drinking or is drinking, do not talk to him. So we played Silence is Golden at our house, and it was that deadly silence that you can't cut with a knife. You know, the self-righteous kind. Well, I could see right off that was not going to work. So I thought, I have got to do something. So I decided, well, I'll have a talk with him. And I stayed up most of one night rehearsing my speech about what I was going to say to him. The next morning, after he woke up, I went into the bedroom to have this talk with him. And I went in there, and the words just stuck in my throat. I could not talk about it. And I thought, what am I going to do? I'll do the next best thing. I'll write him a letter. So I wrote in this rather lengthy letter telling him what his drinking was going to lead to and what he needed to do about it. And the next morning I got up early and I was going to give him that letter. However, I wasn't quite that brave, so I decided I'll leave it for him to find. So I left it on the nightstand and I left because I wanted him to be there by himself when he read it. I gave him an appropriate amount of time to get up and read the letter and think it over. And I was on my way back home, and I just knew that when I got back home, he would say, Darling, you're right. I know what my drink is going to lead to, and I've got to go back to AA, and that's what I'm going to do. And I really believe this is what was going to happen when I got home. Well, I got home, and I walked in the house all ready for this scene, and he didn't say a word. He didn't even mention that letter. And I thought, well, I don't know how he could have missed it, but maybe he did. And I went rushing down to the bedroom to find see if he got the letter, and the letter was missing. So obviously he read it. And I thought, okay, I'll just write him another letter. So 
The next day I wrote him another letter and once again laughed it for him. And once again, he didn't mention that letter. And that made me angry. I thought, I have taken up a lot of my time writing him these letters to explain what his drinking's leading to, and he doesn't even bother to acknowledge receiving them, let alone discuss it with me. So I just had to find something else to do. So I decided, okay, I'll plan his days for him. He just has too much time on his hands, and he doesn't know how to keep himself busy, and that's why he drinks. So I made out a schedule for his day, and I gave it to him, and I explained the whole thing to him, and I left to do whatever I was going to do. Now, as naive as it sounds, I truly believed when I got home that evening that all these things would be done and he would be sober. I got home that evening, and that stranger was there, that stranger that they become when they take that first drink. And I thought, how did he do it? I was totally baffled. I thought, there's no way that he had time to drink today. He had too many things to do. Of course, you and I both know nothing on the list got done, but he had time to drink. Well, this is how our life was going. Every day for the four months of active alcoholism that I lived in, I had a different plan going for how I was going to get him back into AA. And at the evening when that plan for that day would have failed, I would have that brief sense of failure, and all of a sudden my mind would start saying, you can do it. You can find a way to get him back into AA. All you have to do is set your mind to it, and you can find a way. And once again, I would start thinking of a new plan, a new way to get him back into AA. I must tell you that I do not know how much my husband drank. I never saw him take a drink. I never saw him stumbling drunk. You see, I became totally obsessed with the stranger that the alcoholic becomes once he takes that first drink. That personality change. I became so obsessed with that that that's all I looked for, that change in personality. And if there was the slightest change in personality, that was drunk to me, and that's all I looked for. And, you know, just the slightest little bit, as far as I was concerned, was drunk. Now, I should have gotten my first clue about this time that there was something wrong with me. One night, at this time, Rod was commuting to Los Angeles to fly his trip, start his trips, and one morning he left on his trip, and he he always called me if I was at home and he was away on a trip. He always called me from his layover. And this particular night, he had not called at the appropriate time, I thought, and my mind started going crazy. I was good at playing the game of what if. You know, I didn't need my alcoholic there to go totally crazy. My craziest days, I was all by myself. And I did it all to myself. He wasn't even around. And this particular day, I was in that wonderful world of what if. And when he hadn't called by the appropriate time, I decided that what happened was that he got drunk on his way out to Los Angeles and went into operations drunk, and they fired him. And how many hotels are there in the Los Angeles area? And how am I ever going to find him? How am I ever going to get my hands on him to help him this time? And this was real to me. I believed that this is what had happened. 
Now, I knew he was not at the hotel in Montreal where he was supposed to be, but I was willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. I would call the hotel to see if, just to make sure that he wasn't there. I knew he wasn't, but I would, would check. And I called the number of the hotel that I had in Montreal, and the girl answered, and she said, oh, those crews don't stay here anymore. And I said, well, do you have any idea what hotel they do stay in? And she said, well, you might try such and such hotel. So I called that hotel, and they said, no, but you might try this hotel, and I called that hotel. Well, I called about six hotels in Montreal, and I uh, dialed direct. I do not call person to person. And none of the, cr the crews didn't stay at any of the six hotels I called. So I decided, well, all I can do is call crew schedule and find out, because I've got to find out so I can start looking through the hotels in L.A. for him. So I called crew schedule, and a friend of ours answered that night. And I said, uh, Jim, I need that number of the hotel in Montreal where the crews lay over. And he gave me a number, and I said, Jim, that's not the right number. They don't stay there anymore. Don't you have a correct hotel list? And he said, well, no, Kathy, that's the only number I have. Uh, what's Rod's employee number? And perhaps it's on his sequence, what the hotel number is. So I gave him Rod's sequence number, and he said, just a second, I'll put it in the computer and be right back. Now, for some reason, I stayed on the telephone. My thought was, what am I going to do? I know he's going to come back on this telephone and tell me that Rod is not on that trip, and what am I going to do? I mean, how will that look? I don't even know where my own husband is. You know, the old pride and the ego. Well, for some reason, I did stay on the phone. In a few minutes, Jim came back on the phone, and he said, Well, Kathy, they've had a mechanical in Toronto, and they'll be landing in Montreal in about two or three minutes. And then he said it. He said, Kathy, are you okay? And I said, I'm fine, thank you, and hung up the telephone and thought, How dare you ask me how I am? I'm just fine. You ought to be worried about that captain. He's probably out drunk with your airplane. Of course, you and I both know that I was not fine. I was falling apart at the seams. That game of what if was real to me. And I was falling apart. In a few minutes, Rod did call me. Of course, I didn't tell him I'd been looking all over Canada for him. I just let that one pass. But totally going crazy all by myself. That game of what if, and I played it often, and it was real. Now, you know, with us both flying, trying to control an alcoholic for me, sometimes, depending whether I was at home or if we were both on trips, meant controlling from two, three thousand miles apart. But when you've been running the universe all your life, what's two or three thousand miles? You know, I was up to the challenge. And I would get to a hotel. If he was at home, I would rush up to the room and close the door and run for the telephone and call him up to see if he answered the phone, the man I loved, or if that stranger answered the telephone. And then I could hang up the phone and I could worry and wonder, how am I going to fix this one? What am I going to do? How am I going to fix it? Now, we don't have any children, so I didn't mess up the minds of any little children, thank God. But we do have a dog. And she kind of runs the place. Well, we have a window on each side of our front door. And if you drive into our carport, she goes to one of those windows. Well, now, during the drinking, when I would drive up, if he had been drinking, she would not bark. 
and her ears would be down, and I thought, see there, she doesn't like the drinking any more than I do. I must tell you today that the, there was no barking and the ears were down because she was reacting to me, not him. Of course she sensed the drinking and she knew that caused problems because she knew if he had been drinking I was going to come in and I was going to be angry. I was not going to want to play with her. I was going to make her go lay in the corner and leave me alone so I could worry, so I could come up with another plan of how I was going to get him to stop drinking. The worst thing for me during the drinking was the fear. It was a constant companion for me and it was a paralyzing fear, just an all-consuming fear. And my fear was made up of these things. The F was my frustration, trying to make my husband stop drinking, trying to get him back into AA. When you feel your heart breaking, the pain is unbearable. When you have to stand by and watch the man you love more than life itself slowly killing himself, and you can't stop him, and worst of all, you can't help him. That's a frustrating experience. The E was my ego. I can do it. I can find a way to make him stop drinking. I felt if I talked to anybody, that would be to betray my husband, and I didn't want to do that. I loved him. I wanted to help him. I had to find a way to make him stop. The big I. The A was my anger. You know, from the very first when I realized he was drinking, my thought was, why during all those discussions about alcoholism did he not tell me what I should do if he went to back to drinking? I know today that he never talked about that because he never planned on going back to drinking. But I was a long ways from that understanding at that time. And I was very angry about the situation. And the R was my resentment. I resented what I felt he was doing to our lives together, that he was destroying himself and destroying our life together. And then I resented God because I felt God was using my husband to punish me, for I knew not what. And I resented that. And my thought was, God, I don't deserve this. Never thinking that neither did my husband deserve to go back to drinking. So I had a lot of resentments against God about this situation. One night I came home from a three-day trip. <coughs> and when I walked in the house, Rod was sitting on the sofa. And he said, Kathy, I want to talk to you. And that shocked me because we had not talked, not really talked, talked in the four months. So I went in and I sat down and he said, I've got to do something about my drinking. And the only thing I know to do is to go back to AA. And here again I was shocked because he said he was drinking. Because you see, this was an understood thing. We never talked about it. We, the words never came out. He never said he was. I never said he was. We just, <laughs> just understood that he was. And he said he was going back to AA, and that made me very happy, because my only thought was, thank goodness. The drinking's over, and life will be just like it was before, and that's all I want. And the next night, he did go back to AA, and I was real pleased about that. A couple of months later, 
the company found out he had been drinking and the FAA found out he had been drinking and this meant that we were going to have to go back through the exemption process. And I hated for him to have to do that. But I was just so happy the drinking was over, I'd go through anything. Well, the first thing we were going to have to do was see a psychiatrist. And the company called a psychiatrist in Maryland and they made an appointment with him and the first thing he said is, is Rod married? And they said yes and he said good, I'd like to see her too. And I thought that was strange, but I said, okay, I don't mind going. We got up to see the psychiatrist, and the first thing he said was, I'd like to talk to Kathy by herself. Now, I thought that was real strange, because my only thought was, hey, he's the one that's been drinking. Why do you want to talk to me? Well, I went in there and sat down, and the psychiatrist said, what did you resent most about the drinking? And I said, I resented the fact that we couldn't communicate during the drinking. It's one of the things that I've... My most precious thing about our marriage is our communication. And during the drinking, we could not communicate, and I resented that. And he said, mm-hmm. And he said, you really need to go to Al-Anon. And I said, okay. And the next day, the company called, and they said, well, Dr. Wiseman has recommended that Rod go to a treatment center that has a family program so Kathy can go. Now, I thought that was real strange, but... I'll do anything. So the next day, I took him up to Westgate in Denton, Texas. And I saw the family counselor that day, and I said, how often can I see my husband? And she said, three times. On Wednesday night, we have family night. On Friday night, there's an open meeting, and on Sunday, that you can visit with him. And I said, three times a week, that's all. And she said, that's all. You see, I had spied a little motel up there by the hospital, and I planned on moving in for 28 days so I could go to the hospital every day and help him. Well, I did go to that family program on Wednesday night, and I went in there, and I listened to those people, and I thought, my God, these people are sick. There's nothing wrong with me, but these people need help. I don't know what this thing Al-Anon is all about, but perhaps it can help them. I certainly hope so. You see, I know today that I went into those meetings comparing rather than trying to identify and any time I go to a meeting comparing, rather than trying to identify, I'm not guilty. There's nothing wrong with me. And that's what I was doing. Well, at the end of that 28 days, I once again saw the family counselor, and she said, are you going to Al-Anon? And I said, no, not yet, but I will. And she said, good, you really need to go. And the next night, I did go to my first Al-Anon meeting. And I will tell you right now, the only reason I went was to get everybody off my back. Because it seemed that every time I turned around, someone was saying, you really need to go to Al-Anon. And I was tired of hearing it. You see, I've always been a very gifted person. Now, I could figure these things out. Now, I had never been to Al-Anon, had never read any Al-Anon literature, had not talked to another Al-Anon, and all of a sudden, out of the blue, I knew what Al-Anon was all about. I knew that you went in those meetings and bitched and complained about that alcoholic. And that's all you did. And I didn't want any part of it. But I was willing to go to one meeting so I could tell everybody when they once again told me to go to Al-Anon that I had tried it. It wasn't for me. Well, I went to that meeting that night and much to my surprise, they never mentioned the alcoholic. Now, they said, first of all, something that I did not like. 
they said, you let the AAs help your husband and we'll help you. And I said, okay. And I thought, you're crazy. That may be how it works at your house and that's fine and dandy. I'll help you when I get time, but I'm going to help my husband. Now, the next thing they said changed my entire purpose for going to Al-Anon. They said, we work the same 12 steps that AA works. And I thought, wonderful. I'll go to as many meetings as I can possibly go to so I can learn all I can about those steps so I can help my husband. And that was my purpose for going. And that's why I went for a long, long time. Now, about this time, my husband made a big mistake. One night before a meeting, he told me, and at the meeting he told the group, that he was having trouble with step three. And I thought, see, I knew I could help him. Now, mind you, I had not done take work step one, two, or three myself, but I was going to help him. And I am a born researcher. I got every piece of literature. I bought every book, and if it had a three in it, I read it. And furthermore, I read it to him. Now, I selected to do this right before going to bed. I don't know why I picked that time of day. I guess I thought, if I read it to him right before he goes to sleep, he'll fall asleep thinking about it, and one morning he'll wake up and he'll say, thank you for helping me, I've got step three. I just figured it worked that way. Well, one night I was reading my latest bit of wisdom to him on step three after many nights of doing this, and he stopped me in mid-sentence, and he said, Kathy, if you read one more thing to me about step three, I am going to throw that book at you. I was furious. I thought, how ungrateful can you be? After I have spent all this time working and reading and researching, trying to help you with step three, and you don't even appreciate it. Well, I turned over and went right to sleep. Next morning, woke up, was still angry, went outside, worked in my flowers, telling him all about it. He'd just have to work this program by himself. I wasn't going to help him anymore. He would not have that advantage anymore. Now, to show you how sick I was before I ever got back in the house from working in the yard, I had another plan going on how to help him with his step three. I wanted to help him. You see, I know today that my husband had admitted his obsession. His obsession was alcohol. And he was doing something about his obsession. I had not come to terms. I had not admitted. I had not dealt with, was not working on my obsession, which was my husband. When he was drinking, I was obsessed with the drinking. Once he got it back into AA, I was obsessed with AA and his program. He isn't grateful enough. He's not going to enough meetings. He's not reading the right literature. He needs my help. Totally, totally obsessed with my husband. Never looking at myself. Controlling everything, trying to control everything about his program and his sobriety. Now, I did get a sponsor... And she just let me go through all this. You know, I would go to meetings and I would say what I thought you wanted me to say. And I would think and do what I wanted to do. 
And I know today that she realized what I was doing, but she never said anything to me. And it, I know that it was the best thing in the world for me that she didn't, because had she said, Kathy, you are still obsessed with Rod, you're still obsessed with his program, I would have said, no, I'm not. Because, you see, I learned a long time ago that if you're working on somebody, you don't tell them. They don't appreciate it. You just work on them. Once they get better, once they've changed, whatever, they'll recognize you've been trying to help them and they'll thank you for it. But you can't tell them you're doing it. So she let me go through this and I went to a lot of meetings. I, every time there was a meeting and I was at home, I was there. And, and today I thank God that I did go to a lot of meetings, that I kept going to meetings. Even though I was going for all the wrong reasons, I'm glad I kept going. Because I did finally reach a point where I could go in there and I could say, I need help. The confusion became great enough inside of me that I became convinced of steps one and two. Because when I got to you, I was not convinced that I was powerless over anything. I felt that there was nothing wrong with me. I was there to help my husband, and that's what I was going to do. I wasn't convinced of any powerlessness. I was not convinced of any power greater than myself because my philosophy did not go along with that. So I have to say, I did go to enough meetings that I did finally reach that point when I could go in there and I could listen to those ladies with an open mind and I could tell them I needed help. Now, I'm sure after hearing my philosophy about God, you can imagine what a difficult time I had with the God part of this program. And when I got to step three, I really had a hard time because what I heard you say was turn your life and your will over to God. Do God's will. And I wanted that, but I didn't know how. And I couldn't hear you saying how you did it. All I could hear you saying was, I'm doing God's will. I know God's will. And finally, I was able to see that all step three asked me to do was to make a decision. If and when I ever find a power greater than myself, I'll turn my life and my will over to that power. But today, all I have to do is make a decision and get on with it. And start that written inventory in step four and take a look and get to know and get to be honest with Kathy. You see, all my life I've been putting other people in the workshop. I didn't look at me. I looked at you. I didn't work on me. I worked on you. And I did that written inventory in step four. And you know what? I came in here polishing my halo. And step four took my halo away. Because I discovered some things about Kathy, some character defects that I wasn't even aware of or that I never looked at. And I did my first step five with my sponsor. Who does not take this journey of the 12 steps as missing the whole program. You know, I think it's the most human thing in the world to have that feeling of if you really knew me, you would not like me. And step five removes that feeling. Because I told my sponsor in my step five things that I had done and things that I had thought, things which I thought were the worst things in the world. And she shared back with me. And when it was all over, she hugged me and she told me that she loved me. And I told this lady what I thought to be the worst things in the world. 
and she accepted me just as I was and loved me. Now step six and seven are very interesting steps for me. In step six it says we're entirely ready to have all these defects of character removed. Step seven, humbly ask him to remove our shortcomings. And you know, I wish with all my life that I could have just read those and very honestly and humbly asked him to take them and he would have taken them and I'd have been rid of them. But for me, it didn't work that way. It may have worked that way for you, I don't know. But it didn't work that way for me. Because I have to work on being rid of these character defects. And you know, he keeps, as long as I'm willing, bringing these character defects to my mind that I have to work on. Now, I've had a very difficult time with some of my character defects. You've heard most of my story now, and I know you're going to find this one hard to believe, but I could not see myself as a controller. I just could not see that. You know, my mother was the controller. You ask my father a question, my mother answers. That is a controller. I'm not that type of controller. The first, uh, to go back for a second, the first character defect which... I had to become aware of and had to remove before I could really even start working this program was the fact that all of my life it was important to me that you think I'm perfect. I know I'm not perfect, but that wasn't important. The fact was that as long as you thought I was perfect, that's all that mattered to me. And I would go to any length to make you think that I'm perfect. You see, the problem there is when you're trying to do that, you can't go into a meeting and say, I don't understand. You can't ask questions because people won't think you're perfect. And I couldn't do that. And I had to remove that roadblock before I could really start getting honest with me and looking at me. Now this thing about being the controller, the best example of the type of controlling that I did that I can give you is this. Um, my husband drives around with a little traffic director in the car. You know, we're driving along and I'll say, um, gee, there must be an accident up ahead. Everyone's putting on their brakes. That fellow in front of us is getting awfully close to us. Gee, are we in a hurry today? Saying everything except... Gee, we sure are going fast. Why don't you slow down? You're way over the speed limit. Underhanded controlling. Doing every way to control the situation except to come right out and say it like my mother did. That was controlling. To me, the way I did it was just kind of helping and giving guidance, which I certainly was capable of doing. That underhanded controlling, it was so hard for me to recognize, so hard to come to terms with, yes, ma'am, that is being a controller. And I've had a hard time with it. I still have a hard time with it. I like controlling. I'm uncomfortable when I'm not in control of a situation. I never liked to drink because I, when I saw people get drunk, the times I'd gotten drunk, I wasn't in control and I didn't like that. That was uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable for me not to be controlling. However, I know today that it's not a very nice characteristic. Nobody likes it. I don't like it when I see it in other people. And I don't like it in me today, and I have to work on being rid of that. I want to say right now that every character defect I had, 
that I had. I had before I ever had an alcoholic. I did not get one character defect from living in active alcoholism. Active alcoholism aggravated my natural character defects. It did not give me character defects. I would have had them and they would have given me some trouble in any relationship if I would have never had an alcoholic in my life. Active alcoholism did aggravate them, but it did not give them to me. You know, and if I hadn't had that active alcoholic or if I hadn't had an active uh, an alcoholic at all, I probably just could have ignored them and gone along and been okay. As I say, they might have caused a few fusses and fights, but no big deal. But today I have a program that I work that shows me these character defects and it makes them uncomfortable for me and I have to work at being rid of them. I can't afford them because I see the problems they cause me and I have to work at being rid of them. In steps eight and nine, I had to make amends to quite a few people. Not apologize, but make amends, set it right for things I did to other people that wasn't right. Now, step 11. Every Sunday night, my group has a step study. And I went to, I go to that step study, and one night we were on step 11, and this was during the time that I was still working on my contact with a power of greater than myself, a God of my understanding, and I was still having a very difficult time with it. And at this particular meeting on step 11, we read a reading, and it said, every day at the same time, have prayer and meditation. Whether or not you think it will work doesn't matter. Just do it. Now, I knew it wouldn't work, but I wanted to have what you said you had. I wanted to have a relationship with a God of my understanding. I wanted to do God's will. So I decided to give this a try. To hear the voice of God, I climbed the topmost steeple, but God declared, go down again, I dwell among the people. Today I know that's so true. God works through people, through people just like you, because it was through people just like you and through Al-Anon that I have found a God of my understanding. And I spend time with him in prayer and meditation. And today I have a wonderful, wonderful communication with the God of my understanding. I don't always, you know, feel like I have a super communication with him. Some days it's better than other days. But I do have a continuing communication with the God of my understanding. And you showed me how to have that. You taught me how to develop that. So I know that God does work through people. You know, a lot of, on a lot of our literature it says that AA and Al-Anon is a new design for living. And I like that. I love this program. I've also heard it said that Al-Anon will teach you how to cope, and I hate that. Because one of the definitions of the word cope, according to Webster's Dictionary, is fighting to stay even. I was fighting to stay even when I got to you. I had been fighting to stay even all of my life. If that is all that Al-Anon did was to teach me to fight to stay even, you'd have a different speaker today, because I already knew how to do that. I truly believe that 
Al-Anon and the 12 steps of this program teaches me how to live, to really live and to enjoy each and every minute of every day and to get the most out of life, to get out of myself and to give to other people. I get such a wonderful high. And this program has taught me how to do that. The program is the 12 steps. You know, and to keep it in my mind, I heard a little story one time, and it really brings this home to me. This little boy was having difficulty in school, and he was a bright boy, and this professor decided to take him out and spend the day with him and encourage him to where he would want to learn. And they took this little canoe trip, and they were going down the river, and a leaf floated into the boat. And the professor said, what kind of leaf is that? And the little boy said, I don't know. And the professor said, if you don't learn biology, you're going to miss 20% of life. And they went on down the river, and there were some carvings on some rocks. And he said, what Indians made those carvings on those rocks? And the little boy said, I don't know. And the professor said, if you don't learn history, you're going to miss 20% of life. They went on down the river, and it began to be night, and it got dark, and the professor saw a star, and he said, what star is that? And the little boy said, I don't know. The professor said, if you don't learn astronomy, you're going to miss 20% of life. About this time, they felt a swift current in the river, and the little boy jumped out of the canoe and swam to shore, and he yelled back to the professor. He said, do you know how to swim? And the professor said, no. The little boy said, if you don't know how to swim, you're going to miss 100% of life. And that's the way I feel about this program. If you don't work those 12 steps, you're going to miss 100% of the Al-Anon program because the entire program is the 12 steps. Going to meetings is very necessary. Reading the literature is very necessary. But my recovery, my tool for a successful, enjoyable life is in the 12 steps of this program. I love this program. There's no way that I can ever give back to you all what you have given to me. You know, today I can say to my husband, you are you and I am I, and there's no wall between us, just a common understanding and love for each other's individuality. And today I can allow my husband the dignity to be responsible for his own sobriety, and he can allow me that same dignity. I don't get into his program and he doesn't get into mine. And I know today that I have to let him grow at his own pace and he has to let me grow at mine. And as much as I love him, as much as I would like to take any unhappy, hurtful time for him, I can't do that. Because I know that I have never grown from any good things that have ever happened to me. I've only grown from those difficult, hard times that I've had to work through, and I have to allow him that same right to grow. I want to thank you all for asking me to share with you today, and I would like to close with a little prayer that's very special to me. May God bless you with a clear dawning, a cool morning, a warm noonday, a golden sunset, a gentle twilight, a starlit night. And if clouds should cross your sky, may God grant you the faith to look for the silver lining. Thank you.
upcoming topics include the question, how am I trustworthy? Do you gossip? Have you learned to keep confidences in recovery? And how is that an essential part of the Al-Anon program? We welcome your thoughts. You can join the conversation. Please leave a voicemail or send us an email with your feedback or questions. And you can do that. You can call and leave us a voicemail at 734-707-8795. You can call right now, 734-707-8795. You can also use the voicemail button on the website to join the conversation from your computer. And if you prefer not to use your voice, you can send email to feedback at com. We'd love to hear from you. Share your experience, strength, and hope, or your questions about today's open talk or any of our upcoming topics. If you have a topic you'd like us to talk about, let us know. You can find all the information about the show on the website, which is therecoveryshow.com. Got uh, quite a bit of correspondence this week and a couple uh, that I missed last week. So here we go. DJ says, hi there. I'm so glad I found your podcast. You guys share so much great information. I'm new to Al-Anon. I discovered it while trying to figure out how to love my alcoholic sister in the healthiest way for myself. I never even knew about this thing called boundaries, lol. Now that I'm learning, I'm noticing how my six-year-old daughter has a problem with boundaries and seems to take others' emotions and issues in priority to her own at school, in friendships with me, etc. I always consider it just due to her being so empathetic and sensitive, but now realize it's more about control, and I'm seeing how unhappy it makes her. I'm wondering if you have any reference material or maybe a podcast of yours that may help me teach her about boundaries in a kid-friendly way, the way you all have for me. Also, I know for myself I will not be able to set aside time to attend an Al-Anon meeting in person. Can you refer me to where I might be able to find an online forum or meeting I can attend? Thanks for everything you do. Sincerely, DJ. I don't think any of our uh, Boundaries episodes are particularly kid-friendly, although they might not be kid-unfriendly. It's, 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 it's hard for me to say at this point. Uh, there, were, there are several episodes about Boundaries. If you go to the website, therecoveryshow.com, and if you're on your phone, you might want to tap on the menu button, and then on search, if you're on a computer, there's a search box on the right-hand side of the screen. And type in the word Boundaries, and you should find the uh, the episodes that, that we talk about boundaries in pretty quickly that way. And uh, online meetings, and you know, we did an episode about online meetings. And also, when I talked to uh, Eric a few times, he's he's got some online meetings, he's got some, I think, phone meetings. He attends phone meetings. And I know there's some information in one of the episodes I did with him about phone meetings. I'll try to pull that all together and put it into the show notes for this episode, which is at therecoveryshow.com slash 183. That's slash 183. And I uh, hope that helps. Akila left us a voicemail about gratitude, but also about hope. Hey, Spencer, it's Akila. I'm calling about the gratitude episode, giving thanks, I think, with the title. And I still want to talk a little bit about how gratitude has helped me and I remember when I was early in the program, probably my first or second year, it was Father's Day. I hate Father's Day for many different reasons. One of the things that helped me turn my mood around it was actually to get into gratitude instead of thinking of all my um, dad's shortcomings to actually make a list of everything he did that was good that I was grateful for. And it really helped a lot, and I couldn't believe that it worked. 
these past couple weeks, I've been really focusing on, I think, gratitude. But it's also, I wrote a sermon at my church this summer, and it was about hope and finding things to be hopeful for and finding things that give us hope. And so that's another thing I do is I focus on the goodness in the world. What, what are people doing that's giving me hope? Because it's very easy, it's been very easy for me to get into despair. And I look at those places where people are being kind and doing kind acts and fighting and all of the fighting in a positive sense, like all of those things. And that really, really helps me to, to refocus my energy so that instead of being thinking about how bleak everything is, you know, there's reasons to hope. There's ways to get better. And I think we do this in the program, especially when we think about progress, like wherever we make progress. And usually um, when when I attend a meeting that focuses on that, we can all see a place where we're like, oh, I used to do this thing, and now I don't do this thing. Or this situation has gotten better. I thought it would never get better. So um, thanks for the topic, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye. And and thanks, Akila, for reminding us that, that hope can be really, really important sometimes. And that I think, and I don't remember if you said this now, but hope is not the same thing as, as expectation. And we did an episode on hope. It was a while ago. It's episode number 65 at therecoveryshow.com slash 65. If you want to hear what we had to say about it then, not me and Akila, me and somebody else. Got an email from Kristen. Hi, Spencer. I found your podcast a few weeks ago. I love it. There are some things I feel are in the way of my recovery, which I would love to hear someone talk about. They are. The weirdness it is to live with a dry alcoholic who seems to have it all together just because he isn't drinking. He's dry 20 years, we've been together 16. But in reality, it is like we have another person living with us that nobody can see, only feel, and that has this enormous presence and it totally gets in the way of us being able to access each other. I may be lacking English skills to describe what I'm talking about. But if I think of it, I don't have the words for this in my own language either. I feel like it is hard, complicated, confusing to live with a dry alcoholic. The sadness, disappointment, and regret I feel over having not been in a good enough mind shape to really be there for my kids. The fear of the thought that I might never be happy, light, and free. The uncomfortable feeling of the huge loneliness I feel since over the past years I've totally alienated myself, and now when I'm at a place in my program where I can feel that I'm ready for, and in fact have realized that I need people, that there are none around, and it is excruciating. The constant need to be doing something to fix the situation that I so desperately, and with every fiber of my body, do not want to be in. Again, thanks for the show. My best, Kristen. And those are not easy things. I I get that. And sadness, disappointment, and regret. And I think we've got a a topic request a little bit later about regret also. Living with a dry alcoholic. Um, I don't have that experience. Love to hear shares from those of you who do. TheRecoveryShow.com slash contact if you want to share your experience, strength, and hope. Thank you. I think in my experience that as I have worked the Al-Anon program, um, I find ways to, to... be in connection with others and more healthily and uh, and just more. Uh, and and hopefully you will find that too. I too came in here thinking I would never be happy, light, and free. But it actually happens. It happened to me and it happened to me before the alcoholic situation got better. But, but I got better and I was able to be 
at times, happy, light, and free. It doesn't, you know, it's not a, a, a constant state for me, but it, it's definitely there. It's accessible. So if you've got experience that can help Kristen, please share. Hillary has a topic suggestion. Oh, here we are. Hi, Spencer. I'd like to hear a show with various voices offering experience, strength, and hope on the topic of regret. Particularly as a mother, I find a downward pull toward dwelling on mistakes from the past, where I let my children down by losing my temper. I know I can't change the past, and I sense that it is a sneaky way for my disease to take me out of the present moment where I could actually make a difference to my children, including a living amends. I think it's just really hard for me to accept that I have hurt them, and by dwelling on regret, I undoubtedly am indulging in denial or bargaining. It seems like many of the tools of the program apply here. Sometimes what helps the most is hearing other people model the needed behavior, self-forgiveness, living amends, letting go of the past, and that's why I'm hoping you'll consider this a topic for a future podcast. Your podcast is very important to me, and I appreciate the time and effort you and others invest in it to carry the message to myself and so many more. Thanks, Hillary. You know, it's a great topic idea, and obviously our previous correspondent also would like to hear about it. Uh, And, you know, I did a quick search on the website, and we have not talked about regret. So, again, shout out for sharing. Please call or email. Use the contact page at therecoveryshow.com slash contact. And I just want to Add, add right here that I know many of you have written to me and saying, hey, I, I would be glad to participate in the podcast. And I really appreciate that. What, what I have found is that the people that I'm most likely to actually respond to and reach out to when that happens is if one of these, one of these topic ideas that we're talking about really hits you and you would like to, to share on that topic, uh, because it's a lot easier for me to say, oh, yeah, so, um, you know, Kathy wants to share about regret and to set up a time to, to do that. Then, well, Kathy wants to be on the show sometime and, um, but I don't know what, what topic to, might be of interest. And I, and, and I'm just knowing myself, I'm less likely to actually follow through on that. So please, if, if you're interested in participating and one of these topics strikes you or another topic that you'd like to talk about, just, let me know that in, in particular, and we'll set it up. Thanks. Penelope writes, thank you. I'm new to Al-Anon six months and was so happy to find your podcast. It is one of the tools that is helping me along with my group and daily practice to deal with the fear I have for my loved one. Let go, let God is my daily mantra. I really enjoy your program. Although I enjoyed the open meeting speaker one of your listeners referred to this week and listened to that one twice, I also enjoyed the exchange between you and your guests with the emails and voicemails added in. I'm in the process of listening to the older podcasts. I believe this week's guest was Pat, and she's given me the courage to try another group along with the one I currently attend. In one of your talks, you mentioned that people were your drug of choice. I laughed out loud. That's me. Until I joined Al-Anon, I thought that was one of my strong points. Now I'm humbled into realizing I was often just meddling because I thought I knew best. I really like the way you handled the election with your Sunday school class, letting them express their views without criticism from the rest of the group. What a good idea for our communication in daily life, not just Al-Anon meetings. Sincerely, Penelope. And, and thank you, Penelope. And as you can see this week, I'm, I'm playing another speaker because the, the weekend was very full. Uh, we had a fair amount of snow. And I spent some time shoveling. I spent some time with family. We went to see a movie. And in consequence, this is what I'm able to do this week. But there were so many emails. I, I have to I have to put them in. Otherwise, next week it will be overwhelming. And I really appreciate your emails. Don't, don't stop sending them because I just said so many emails. Ugh, that would be horrible. Is anybody out there? There, there, there. 
Thank you. Patricia left a voicemail about anger. Um, hi, Spencer. This is Patricia calling from New York. I want to congratulate you first on the amazing show that you record every week. I listen to it religiously um, for the past two years, and I really appreciate it. Yeah, I I am very familiar with the theme that you have going on for next week, um, Anger. I have been in recovery for about eight years and definitely working the steps. Now, getting sober also, I am um, Alanonic, but I'm also a recovering addict. So that has really, really helped me, um, especially, you know, after doing all the inventory and step 11, uh, to see my, my side on, on the, you know, all the effects of my disease. And, um, I was a rageaholic. I still have such a short temper. This week, for instance, I, um, was doing service for one of the meetings and I, I am sort of like a perfectionist. So I was doing like, a million things for a million people at the same time, and I sent an email uh, breaking anonymity of one of the groups uh, because I pasted uh, the information in the wrong place, and I was doing it on my phone while I was doing something else. And then I had this shame attack about it, and um, there was someone that was very upset about it, obviously. I mean, a few years ago, I would just have, like, you know, ignored my fault and I've done like, I would just like tell the person to shut up or whatever. Like just using the steps, I apologized and I made it clear to the group that no anonymity was violated. You know, it just was for a moment that my anger flared and and then, you know, other other emotions were able to be expressed. So, you know, I'm really grateful to the program. I think Anger has controlled my life for years and years in addiction. I'm so happy that it's not that straitjacket that limits my life. And also, it was my inability also to set boundaries. I only was able to set a wall, and it was through anger and limits. Um, and I know I know myself. I know how to set limits. And I'm sure that many of us, including me, can identify So thank you. Thank you, Patricia. Anna writes, Dear Spencer, just finished listening to the show on anger and I loved it. While listening to Carrie's voicemail message about the Know Myself episode. Hi, Carrie. I was inspired to write you when she mentioned Aaron's message and the whole issue of how to get one's spouse to embrace recovery. Attraction, not promotion, is our foundation and I believe in it and practice it. And I'd like to share again about another 12-step program that my fiancé and I attend called Recovering Couples Anonymous. When my fiancé and I first started dating, my Al-Anon sponsor recommended RCA. She and her husband work on RCA program in addition to their individual 12-step recovery programs. I mention RCA to anyone who shares with me that they are in couples therapy. RCA is cheap, and it's a group therapy-like setting where we learn from other couples. It's given us a set of ground rules for how to be in a committed coupleship. We get the benefit of other couples sharing their experience, strength, and hope as they model the miracle of a healthy relationship. And we are working the 12 steps of RCA together and just completed our fifth step with our sponsor couple. What a gift that was. As a result of two and a half years in RCA, I can honestly say that our coupleship is thriving on a foundation of interdependent autonomy and trust. 
In addition, RCA has a book of sample agreements that are fantastic. We have a fair fight contract, a financial contract, you name it. Anything that comes up for us, yes, even a laundry contract. My life is full and magical thanks to the 12 steps of Al-Anon and RCA. By the way, I love all your podcasts, whether it's you alone, you're with guests, or an open talk. Thank you for your service. Holiday blessings to you and your family and to all who are listening. Love, Anna. And, and thank you again, Anna. You know, I looked up RCA in my area, and there's one. It's about an hour away. An email from Janelle. Hi, Spencer. I've been wanting to send you an email for quite a while now. Last January, I hit my rock bottom and knew that I needed help. I grew up with an alcoholic father and always swore I would never raise kids in an alcoholic home. However, I found myself the mother of a six-month-old, and while feeding him one night, I realized I was barely paying attention to my son while I was screaming at my husband with tears rolling down my face. I knew I needed help. My husband's drinking had progressively gotten worse, and I could no longer live in denial. My life had truly become unmanageable. I searched around for podcasts on alcoholism and found The Recovery Show. I started listening whenever I could, mostly when in the car or doing housework. I would listen to at least one or two episodes each day, and I couldn't get enough. I had every excuse not to go to meetings, but really I was scared. Listening to your show gave me the courage to go to that first meeting, and I'm so glad that I did. I learned so much about the Al-Anon program from your show, and I believe that without it, I may not have walked into that first meeting and found a sponsor. My husband hit his own rock bottom this summer and is working his own program. I believe that your show helped me to detach and recognize my enabling behaviors. When I stopped trying to control him and make him see the light, he found sobriety. Go figure. I am truly grateful for everything that you do, and I owe my life to this program. I can now be a more present mom and enjoy my young son. All of my relationships have improved, and in most of them, I'm the only one that has changed. I now know that no matter what anyone else is doing, I can find contentment and even happiness. Thank you so much. Forever grateful. Janelle. Thanks thanks for the, for the share, Janelle. And I'm glad that you have found recovery and that, and that your husband found some too. Sarah left a comment on the anger episode, which is number 182 on the website. Thank you so much for this episode. It couldn't have come at a more perfect time for me. The night before I listened, my counselor helped me realize just how much anger and resentment I held. I'm starting to realize that I have stuffed down my sadness, resentment toward others, and myself, and now it is showing up in my angry outbursts. It is a relief to start to put it all together. I have a young son, and it dawned on me that the best thing I can do for him at this point to work through this anger and resentment. I thought before the program the best thing I could do for him was to try to control my spouse's drinking. Thank you to the woman with young children that asked for the episode and had the courage to ask the questions I needed to ask myself. Your situation sounds so similar to mine. Thank you to your guest that provided some wisdom and hope from a perspective of someone that has raised children through this messy process. Thank you, Spencer, for all you do. I listened to one podcast on the way to work and one on the way home. Thanks, Sarah. And I'm just, those of you who are, are listening to one or two every day, that's, that's just amazing. But, um, I'm glad that, you know, you're finding, finding something that is helping you there because that is why we do this. Note from Carrie says, hope this finds you well. Thanks so much for the last few, parenthesis, last 182 smiley episodes. They've been amazing for me. Some topic ideas, tools, holidays in 12 step and hypervigilance. I just got super clear during a meditation that hypervigilance is part of me on a cellular level. And as I was sitting there trying to focus and the things I have to do kept creeping in. The difference this time, detachment. And I could see clearer that this constant rushing into myself is old messages, not the truth or even what I believe. 
Also tools, I love tools. I love to think of them that way. I keep seeing lately how something will happen in the past that would have reduced me to a puddle for a few weeks, but I'm okay. Or like meditating this morning. I always wanted to, but I didn't know how to do it on my own. Now I have amazing guided meditations I love. I'm okay this holiday. Feel better this year than I have. Keep noticing I feel happy, different the past years, and I've had lots of situations go down which have rattled me, but I get to meetings, tools, and I keep coming back to my center within days. Take care, best, Carrie. And wow, great, great ideas. Um, so tools, I think about that and I think, you know, everybody's got a favorite tool or two. And if you wanted to call, call and leave a voicemail or record yourself on your phone and email it to me or just send, send an email and I can read it about your favorite tool in Al-Anon. What is your favorite tool in Al-Anon? Send it in and we'll build a whole episode with lots of voices. It's easy. Go to therecoveryshow.com slash contact and all the information you need about how to do it is right there. Thanks. It doesn't cost you anything to listen to The Recovery Show, but we do have expenses which run about $60 a month. You can help to support us and keep us on the web and in your ear. We have a donation button on the website where you can support us directly, just like Debbie, Penelope, and Jeffrey did. A recent donation came with a note that said, I wish I could give more. And I just want to say that whatever you are able to give is more than enough. I want to thank everybody who continues to support this show in the ways that you can, in the ways that you do, whether that's sharing the podcast with your friends, direct them to therecoveryshow.com, or just listening. We are here for you. And thank you for listening, and please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. We did not talk about a problem you are facing today. Feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. May understanding, love, and peace grow in you one day at a time.